What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision-making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to Sensorina.com to check it all out. On the Hockey IQ podcast today, we bring on Thomas Pacina. Uh, 30 plus years in hockey, Thomas. Uh, how's it been? How are you? Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, it's been uh, a month of rest and um, reflection for me. I've stepped down as the head coach of the Czech women's national team over a month ago and uh, just uh, enjoying some time off and using it to reflect and to study and see what's the newest out there in hockey coaching and skills coaching and team tactics and uh, sort of reflect a little bit back on my life as, as a coach. I think that's the uh, perfect time to catch you to record a podcast. I uh, love that reflective state. We, we always are trying to create it in our players so they can further their development. So uh, even though you've had 30 amazing years, uh, I believe that you probably have a few more ahead of you once you're well rested up and uh, enjoy some good study time. Thank you. I, I hope so too. I hope so too. So let's uh, let's rewind a little bit. So you're originally from the Czech Republic, uh, but then you jumped over to North America at some point and had a long uh, career in skills coaching. And, and really, I feel like you were one of the, the first people to do this full-time at a very, very high level. So if you wouldn't mind maybe going back to the beginning and giving us a little story of, of how you came to the North American continent and stayed here for quite some time before heading back over to take over the Czech uh, women's program. Yeah, so um, I uh, started coaching in Germany. I was uh, about 22 years old, and I played a little bit of hockey in junior in Germany after having career in tennis and swimming and uh, skiing and starting with hockey as a little kid. So I, I was a, as an athlete, I had a multi, uh, multi-dimensional career. And then hockey was always my biggest, uh, biggest love, biggest uh, passion. So I started with little tiny kids, you know, four or five years old beginners in Germany. But my dream was always to go to North America and to learn from the best coaches in the world. And so in 94, I uh, left Germany after about three, four years of coaching and became, um, you know, triple A midget coach in, in Calgary, Canada. I uh, was able to guest coach with the Calgary, Calgary Flames and Dave King, who was one of my most influential mentors um, and uh, started to do more uh, individual sessions that sort of came um, very um, accidentally, if you will, um, just um, was at the sports school working with 12 kids that had ice hockey every day with me on the ice, but were never playing for a team at the school. They had their own teams um, after school. So I was not able to work on any tactics 
or any forechecking, any um, breakouts, uh, anything like that. So I had to figure out what to work on with those kids. So that was in 95, 96, I think. And so coming back from um, the Czech and uh, Russian school of hockey where individual skills were always very important, even in the 50s and 60s and 70s of the last century. Um, and coming from individual sports as tennis and skiing, I always felt that uh, there is a need in hockey to, uh, to work with the players, not only on the team stuff, but also develop them individually. And so for me, it was a natural uh, nag that I already had. I was always looking at the movement uh, of the player, and I always thought, how can I help this player to become more efficient? Um, and that was sort of the, those were sort of the beginnings of, of the skills coaching. There was always power skating coaches in Canada, long, long history of power skating coaches, but skills coaches that would work on shooting and deception and different kind of moves and um, which we today is absolutely the norm. Uh, that was in the nineties, in the mid nineties, that was not the, uh, the order of the day back then. So you started in Calgary. Uh, you had Dave King as a mentor. So what were maybe some things that Dave King uh, taught you in your younger years? And were there other people uh, in those beginning years that, that helped you start? And maybe yeah, some Dave of those King pieces and, you took away? Yeah, yeah. Dave King and Wally Kozak, uh, extremely instrumental in, in, the, in the beginning, just the way they taught the game, uh, the way they were teaching on the ice. I remember uh, Wally and Dave being very, very detailed when they were um, presenting the drills. Uh, they always had teaching points in every drill, uh, which was, you know, I, I was used to, you know, just write a drill and this is what you do, A, B, C, D. And, but uh, Dave and Wally, they were both great teachers. So th there was always a detail. And whenever it was a passing drill or shooting drill or defensive drill, defensive skating, whatever it was, it was always attention to detail, you know, top hand here, bottom hand here. You want to stop with one foot and the other foot is here. And so it was very influential on me, the, the details they have asked the players. And uh, they were both team coaches. Dave King was coaching the men's national team. And then later on, when I met him, the Calgary Flames. And I, I remember him running practices at the saddle home and uh, sitting in, in, in the stands and just listening to his voice, how he was uh, detailed and um, how he didn't allow the players to just go through the drill. He wanted certain things to be seen in the drill and he followed on it. And as well, I liked uh, when he gave feedback, he was very specific. He didn't just say, hey, good job, or this was, I like this. He says, you know, the way you pulled the puck between your legs or the way you shot there or the way you came back on this drill on the back check, uh, he was very specific. And I think when we are very specific with our feedback, it, it makes the players feel good. It's just like, okay, coach notices. And I think those were sort of the first um, two guys in Canada who really, really influenced the way I run drills, the way I get feedback, and the way I communicate with players. Giving specific feedback. I, I really enjoy that. It's the first thing I always tell my assistant coaches that we need to do because I always hate, like, you need to be harder on pucks. Okay, well, how do we need to do that? I'm more curious about the how. So, okay, I feel like I'm on the right track there. So that's, that's excellent. 
Um, and you talked about how you go about running trails. I'm curious what that meant or what that means to you about shaping the drill differently than maybe you had before to mm-hmm. incorporate skills or be very specific in what you're teaching to make sure that you're being the best teacher and allowing the students to learn best. That has evolved over the years, of course. I mean, like I said, from Dave and Wally, I learned that there's got to be a teaching point, whether it's regarding timing or skating or saving ice or whatever it is. But as I have evolved as a skills coach, I've tried to incorporate skill into regular team drills. So let's say when we go back for the puck to the corner, let's make sure we have a good shoulder check. Okay, how do we shoulder check? And then when I realized, when I started incorporating that, I realized before I do a team drill or a group drill, I need to warm up that skill. I need to introduce that skill, let's say shoulder check, into the warm-up. So if I would do a warm-up and there would be a game, I would say, okay, so now we're just going to play one-on-one. I'm going to dump the puck in. But first thing you guys have to do is a shoulder check before we get to the puck. So I started... Before I wanted, before I introduced the skill, I knew I need to warm it up. I need to introduce it before I show it in a complicated or more of a team uh, drill. And so that has influenced how I run my practices. And then it evolved into, I want to show a video before I start practice. So uh, let's say today we're going to work out on work on breakouts. That means we got to go for pucks first. So I'm going to show some video how the best players in the world are doing it. And so when the players come to practice and they step on the ice, they already have an idea of what is expected of them. Um, so it has evolved over the years where today with the national team, when I think back, we had a one or two themes for one practice and the girls have seen a video. They have seen uh, how other teams are doing it, how Tampa Bay is doing it. They've seen themselves, how they do it. And the first thing when we come on the ice, there's already an element of what we're going to work on. And then we just add players. We add uh, pressure. We add uh, maybe uh, more people. Um, and But the whole practice is about one or maximum two themes, which is very different than when I started 30 years ago. I would maybe work on four or five different things. Uh, and now it's more focused. Let's work on one thing and let's work it. Let's work on it really deep. So that when we leave the ice, we really have a feeling we have accomplished something. Um, and I have to say Mike Johnson uh, from Portland Winterhawks, who I've worked with for 11 years, he's been absolutely instrumental in helping me uh, in, in realizing that not only in skill work, but also in teamwork to, to be focused on one maximum two things in one practice and really accomplish something. All right. So we should not do practices that have an element of this, a little element of that, a little element, make sure we hit the, the entire buffet. We should maybe focus, you know, go to the specific steakhouse, worry about perfecting our, our steak making abilities uh, to you make know, an analogy there. That's, and I, I'll take it even further. Uh, you know, we were playing in Finland and Finland is one of the best countries in developing young players and they are winning a lot, whether it's women or men on international field. And uh, I remember now in November, I talked with the coaches. I said how they practice during the year. And they said, well, we, we would pick a theme, like let's say defensive 
work, uh, defensive skating, defensive stick work, surfing, and stick on puck and stops and starts and body positioning and so on and so on. And we work on it for five weeks. We have five week segments. So not, not just one practice, it's five weeks. Five weeks work on just defensive work. And I mean, there's a lot of components to defensive work, but the players, whether it's in club level or national team level, they just get hit with one thing and then they work on offensive concepts, let's say entering the zone. And they, yes, there's many, many different things you have to work on, but the players are not overwhelmed with too many things. It's just one thing. And you, you because it's one thing, you can go deep into it. Uh, my mistake as a young coach was that I would be touching on everything, but it would always be on surface. And uh, if I give you uh, a task for the next two weeks, every single day, just going to work on uh, going back for the pucks into the corner, automatically by doing that, you will see, oh, wow, he could turn his toes this way but when the pressure is closer he cannot do this he's got to do something else oh wow when he has got lots of time he doesn't have to do it he can take the puck behind a net automatically as a coach because you do just one thing you will go deeper and deeper and deeper and therefore it will have a way more solid foundation than if we just touch on things a little bit here a little bit there a little bit here Fascinating. I love to hear how you evolved through time because I feel like you just don't hear about that anymore. You hear about where people are currently and not all of the ways that we've tried in the past. Um, and you've, so going back and, and kind of weaving this into your, your path. So you, you started with the New York Rangers as a skills coach. Um, and as well, I believe Team Canada before then. And then you were working on the women's side as well. So you started doing some individuals and then you had some teamwork when you were doing both at the same time. I'm curious how that interlocked because I feel like it's very much different if you always start as a head coach and you see nothing but big picture versus starting as a skills coach and then seeing the big picture. I'm curious how that evolved for you or how that shaped your vision for how you go about uh, creating teams. Um, it's a, um, it's a different, uh, look, different perception. And yet at times it was overwhelming in a way that when I was coaching the team and I had some of the best players in the world, I had Danielle Goyed, Haley Wickenheiser and Cassie Campbell, not to forget, uh, most of them now in the hockey hall of fame. And I had a vision how we want to play the game. And then yet, I, at the same time, I saw the deficiencies in the skill. And then when I was working with some of the NHL players, I realized, yes, I can work with, with them on skills. However, there is a, a tactical component that I have to incorporate as well. So uh, today, I'm extremely grateful for the, uh, for the experience that I had. I was able to see the game from both sides. Uh, back then... It was always a process of sorting out, okay, so what is the most important thing today? What is the absolute essential thing I need to work on today in terms of a team perspective? But also, and I go back to that always, always, is that once you have a philosophy with the team, you have to know 
what skills you need to use to have that philosophy. So we always been a puck position team. So one of the things that you need for that is obviously passing and receiving, but at the same time, incredible great skating because you need to constantly skate into support. You have to be actively in support positions. And naturally out of that, when you get the puck, you need to have a phenomenal puck protection skills to keep the puck. So it, the way I was coaching and my philosophy in puck possession was always determining the skills that I need to work on. Now with the players, when I work with them only individually, it, depending on, on the needs of the players, I'm thinking now about Jerome McGinley, uh, when we worked together for about four years, um, you know, one of his needs was lateral movement. And uh, he wanted to be able to escape from situations, from, from checkers, from defenders to the side, to the left, to the right, to his back and to his forehand. And one of his deficiencies back then was he was not able to use his outside edge very well. He was a very, very balanced, centered skater on his inside edges. So for him to be able to move laterally, we had to work on his outside edges. And it's interesting how uh, work with little kids, with five, six-year-old kids, when you think of them, they're always on the inside edges. And introducing them to the outside edge and feeling the outside edge helped me in uh, helping some of the best players in the world. Um, and once we have got Jerome very, very comfortable on his outside edges and using it for the lateral crossover, not the linear crossover that everybody's using now. We haven't worked on that yet, but uh, lateral crossover, he was able to fake one way and escape to the other side. And with the help of the crossover, he was able to achieve some um, separation. I feel like the outside edge is always the most underdeveloped edge in skating. Um, so, I'm assuming you've heard of the A-frame before. Yes, A-frame skating. So I'm curious. The, you about... mean the tripod? I'm I'm yes. Centered. Yeah, uh, tripod, tripod and I have the puck in front of the body. Yes, uh, I think we should dive in a little bit deeper on that. I, obviously, we yes, cover please. a lot of knowledge, but I mean that one's uh, something particular that I think people don't realize until it's too late. If you're self-diagnosing your own game, uh, or if you're coaching. If you don't realize it early enough, you don't understand how important it is to get out of that shape and out of that location where it's super inside edge dominant and how that really boxes players into certain movement patterns that are going to be inefficient or they have to move to move. And now they've got problems escaping pressure and it just leads to a bunch, bunch of issues. So I'm curious from your perspective, what your thoughts are on that, maybe some solves to that. Well, you have uh, spoken about something I have, unfortunately, with uh, not so much success preached here. Maybe I was not supposed to preach it. I was had to find a different way of communication. But uh, when you look at uh, youth hockey in Czech Republic, this would be probably in terms of skill, in terms of um, individual tactic, in terms of viewing the game, probably the big, biggest weakness, handling the puck in front of me between the legs and being on the inside edges. Um, it's we call a position eater. Somebody calls it stuck. Somebody calls it dead in the water. Somebody calls it centered. To me, one of the biggest issues 
biggest weaknesses overall. Um, and um, the way I have approached it uh, last 30 years is I was always doing, whenever I did some skating work, I was always doing it on one foot. So inside edges, outside edges, with the puck, without the puck, puck handling and faking is always one foot. So players realize that the game of hockey or the way I skate, it's always I'm either on the left foot or I'm either on the, or on the right foot. And that will also impact uh, the puck placement. Where is the puck? So it's, it needs to be either on my forehand beside my, uh, I'm a lefty, beside my left foot, or it's got to be on the f- backhand beside my right foot if I'm a left-handed shot. That allows me, of course, to either shoot, pass, or, uh, or, or make a move. And of course, you know, once I'm on the outside, inside edge, it allows me to turn back, to cut back, to, to have some escapability, some movement. So my approach, again, uh, a lot of one-footed, uh, a lot of weight shift drills. Um, I remember with Portland Winterhawks was one of the things that Mike Johnson always wanted from me is like every player uh, want, needs to be able to escape. So that means weight shift and from the weight shift being able to cross over and jump to the other side with puck first movement um, to the forehand, to the back, and no matter whether you're defenseman or, or a... Uh, uh, or forward and you see even today in the NHL as soon as uh, they put both feet on the ice inside edge all they can do is pass the puck uh, and usually and if it's on their backhand it's a weak backhand uh, and the forecheck jumps on it and there's a turnover I just watched a few clips the other day the moment the defenseman goes into the tripod position he is like a, what do you call it lame duck Dead in the you know, water. You, you basically have stopped playing. And the other problem with that is that most people don't talk about. You, you move as a unit of five, constantly moving as a unit of five. Watch a hockey game and watch the puck carrier go into that tripod A-frame position. And you will see how it deactivates everybody else. Because we are connected. There is a connection between five players. And when the one with the puck stops moving, everybody is sort of in a very, very passive position. Now, when the puck carrier starts moving and there is a crossover, linear, lateral, uh, doesn't matter, there's a movement, it activates everybody else around. So it has an impact. The puck carrier has impact on everybody else. Fascinating stuff there. I really like this conversation. And I want to go a little bit deeper on an element you, you mentioned here about puck first movement yes. and affecting puck placement. So if we're talking about puck placement, I think this may lead us down the path of how can we use puck placement to teach skating? Because mm-hmm. I think that would be uh, something probably very few have thought about but it's very, very effective when you talk about using puck placement to then influence skating, just simply taking the puck out from being between your feet to outside or sliding a puck into an area. And now your feet have to go get that. Yeah. So of course it, it's something that, uh, you know, people like Daryl and uh, people who are very well advanced are, have been using it for, for quite time. Again, I, 
I personally was using it uh, instinctively. I was never calling it puck placement. I always called it let the puck travel. So players who used to work with me, they, they knew that let the puck travel. So let the puck lead you where you want to go. And the body will automatically do things, which is, for example, separating the upper body from the lower body, or even more having head in one position, upper body in one position, lower body in the other position. So maybe three different positions with hands, maybe reaching for the puck. So I always used it to work on edges uh, because once you put the puck on uh, one side, you automatically, your weight is going to be on that side, on the inside edge. And then uh, advancing into, um, you know, escape moves, cutbacks, turnbacks, uh, accelerations with the puck. But when the puck leads, it forces your body, if you have to, re you have to reach for it, to do things that would be extremely difficult to do without the puck. And I think you would never do it. Um, and actually, it leads to a movement that is more fluid and it's more instinctual um, than if I would have to walk you through and teach you the movement without the puck. Uh, one way to uh, teach it, and again, uh, you know, there's players like or coaches like Daryl have a very detailed description for it. I used to do it in instinctively. I didn't know I, unconsciously. Um, I would work with two or three pucks. I would have one puck in the feet, one puck or two pucks on the stick. And just by the way, you had to move the puck and you have to keep three or two pucks constantly moving. You had to go into positions, extension, uh, weight shift, uh, peripheral vision, um, long reach uh, with, with your bottom uh, top hand. Um, and also being in very, very uncomfortable positions, uh, yet that you would find in the game. So my players, you know, the feedback of my players that I used to work with is that we have so much more confidence with the puck. And um, I did not work as, as Daryl does, where I incorporated every single skill drill into uh, a, a tactical, individual tactical situation. But I, I worked... Yeah, like I said, more unconsciously, intuitively on things that I knew that the player will use it in the game instinctively, automatically, without thinking about it. And puck first is something that, uh, you know, I, I can recommend to any kind of a uh, coach or a player because they will be able to do things like, you know, quick, tight turns, when they are able to move the puck close to their feet, that would be very difficult to do without the puck. Teaching skating, skating via puck movement or puck touches, uh, fascinating concepts there. Uh, I'm curious, what are maybe some other instinctual things that you taught that are elements that are automatically pretty much going to be recalled in many game situations rather than teaching a skill and attaching it to a tactic, but more so your process of, taking those skills that you know are going to be used and are going to be recalled very easily? You know, like, what are those? Give us maybe some examples for people who may not be aware of those. Yeah, so some of the, uh, some of the stuff that I um, did was I thought that most players move, if you, if you have the gears in the car and you have a first gear, second gear, third gear, fourth gear, fifth gear, 
I felt that most players were moving sort of at the third gear, maybe sometimes four, uh, maybe sometimes two, but very little was ever done very, very slow. And very, very little was done at the highest possible pace. So I was trying to use the number one gear and number fifth gear very often and interchangeably. Because if you think about it, some of the drills like edge work and skating on one foot and handling the puck, if you pick up some speed, it becomes very quite easier. If you have to do it extremely slow at a slow motion level, uh, it's very difficult to do. Um, and I always thought if you can do it super slow, and by the way, by the way, I've learned this from other sports. I've learned it from skiing. I learned it from swimming and I learned it from tennis. Uh, that to, to be able to execute something very, very well, I wanted my players to be doing it at extremely slow, almost slow motion play uh, pace. And then picking up speed, of course, and picking up the pressure and uh, adding elements to it, and then being able to do it at the, you know, uh, the highest speed back then it was called overspeed. Uh, where they fail, where they actually fail and they fall down and they lose the puck. So we knew that we were touching at the threshold when they were losing the puck, when they were losing the edges. But uh, sort of the combination between, uh, okay, let's do some um, drills with long extensions with maybe escape moves or maybe fake a shot and push out or fake a shot and pull in and heel to heel situations with the feet, but let's do it super slow so that you can actually feel the movement and experience the movement. When I do it too fast, I don't feel anything. When I do it sort of at the third, fourth, you know, I don't feel the proper movement and I don't feel the mistakes. And when you slow it down, uh, and it's extremely uncomfortable for most players because all their life they've been going, let's go, let's go, hard feet, quick feet, um, let's jump on the pucks. So slowing it down was very, very important for me. And by the way, it was also great for a warm-up. I remember in Florida, when I was with the Florida Panthers, um, Jacques Martin allowed me the first 15 minutes of every practice. And the first five minutes of the 15 minutes were always very deliberate, very slow, one foot skating, shift your weight, where's the puck, bottom hand, sliding on the stick, long reach, 360 degrees around your bodies. And then we picked up the speed. And the comment that was by all players and the coaches, the, the practice had a better quality because the players were properly warmed up, not only with their bodies, but also with their mind and with the nervous system. And I think we missed that element. And I am uh, a big proponent, not the whole practice, but part of the practice, especially if the drill, if you cannot achieve something and the player is not getting the skill, do it slow and do it super slow. And, and uh, it's like driving a Ferrari and you're driving 300 kilometers an hour. You don't feel anything on the road. You don't feel any rocks. You don't feel anything. But when you slow it down, you will feel every bump. And to me, feeling and experiencing uh, the movement is very, very important. And therefore, I slowed it down quite a bit. And, and that touches on the idea of field-based teaching, field-based learning, which I think is under-talked about. Um, field-based, absolutely, exactly, yes. 
Yeah, because if you can't feel it truly in your body, is it really attached to what you're going to recall under serious competition or realistic situations that are going to be hard that you have to problem solve? Um, so I'm curious maybe what your journey was with field-based learning. Was that something that came very intuitive to you or is that something that you one day were like, the glass smashes and you can't unfeel it or unsee it. Uh, I'm curious to get your ideas and thoughts around field-based learning, field-based teaching, because uh, it's always a pet peeve of mine. when I see a skating coach, you, know, you put your left foot here and I'll put your right foot there. I'm like, there's 0% chance that this is going to get recalled in an actual game situation. Uh, like, like I said, I, I felt it myself as an athlete because I had coaches in, um, in, uh, especially in tennis and then in, in swimming as well, and not so much in hockey, uh, where they were field-based coaches. So I had to do, as a tennis player, certain action very, very, very slow until I got it, I, until I felt the ball, until I was able to do it perfectly um, at, at, you know, repetition 20 times, 30 times, 50 times, uh, and uh, I was able to do it at a slow pace. So I immediately took it to hockey when I, when I was even a beginner and like in the late 90s. And players and co coaches and parents were sort of wondering if it's going to help the players because, you know, hockey is such a fast game. You should be doing it everything fast and at a high pace. So it, again, it came to me absolutely uh, intuitively what I have added as a coach is what you mentioned uh, I started asking questions so how does this feel for you and I was not happy with like oh it feels good or it feels bad this is like okay does it feel soft does it feel fast does it feel you know uncomfortable like I wanted detailed description from the players how does this how does this feel and we took it even further uh, with skating, where when I had problems with uh, players, including including Jerome and other top players, uh, when we had tough time getting them on the edges, we started to loosen the, uh, the, the laces and skate with loose skates. So what does it do if you have a loose skate? Now suddenly you have to really, truly balance your foot in the skate but you feel your edges way better. You, you never feel as good edges as if you have loose, loose skates. And so I had players spending 60 minutes the whole practice with loose skates, just skating, maybe then slowly and then, yeah, backwards and forwards and pivoting and one foot skating and with the puck. And, and Jerome has progressed, uh, progressed to a point where he didn't want to tie up his skates, even when we were doing one-on-ones, two-on-ones, two-on-twos. And he actually changed the way he ties his skates. Uh, after the summer we spent with untied skates, he would tie the skates for games much, much looser than before. And he had a better feel. And again, that comes from skiing. One of the greatest skiers in the history of downhill, Franz Klammer, he was an Austrian skier, um, 1976, he won the, old, the Olympic gold, uh, has many records 
how many races he won. Uh, he always had a very, very soft boot. Uh, most skiers have really stiff boots. In fact, he, was, he had a very soft boot. He said, I need to feel the snow. I need to feel my edges. And so there is a interaction with the equipment as well. And I find uh, s- skaters with very stiff boot don't have as much feel for the ice as, as players who have it a little softer and tied up a little bit looser so they can have a more natural knee bend and feeling the edges. Uh, so to me, it's same thing with gloves. When we talk about gloves, uh, field-based training. So if you see the little kids, they can hardly move their glove. The glove is so stiff. And then the palm of the glove has two layers on it. So that was the first thing I was doing with my players. I was like, no, you got to re, uh, redo this and have only one layer. The parents were not too happy. It was expensive. And then the hole in the glove was after, you know, 20 practices, there was a hole in the glove. But when you have a soft layer, you feel the stick way better. And you, feel, you have a better feel for the puck. So it doesn't, you know, just go into how do you feel. Same with chimp pads, same with pants. How, how long are the shin pads? Are they actually impeding? And I, you know, today I'm still looking at the NHL and I would be like, this guy could have a little shorter shin pads or a little bit, th- maybe not as wide, maybe a little thinner. It would make him a better skater. Um, I know it's a personal preference, but uh, it impacts the way you feel the eyes, the feel you meet, move, uh, feel the motion, you feel the crossovers, you feel the edges and then same with the stick. So I don't know if I have answered your question, but it's uh, feeling was what I was about, was always about how, how does this feel? What is, you know, when the puck is beside your body on the forehand in the shooting position, how does this feel when you have top hand here? So a lot of the things that I was teaching the players were extremely uncomfortable. So there needed to be a huge trust between us to say, okay, I'm going to do what Thomas is saying. Um, and, you know, I was not a ex-NHL player that would automatically have respect of players. I need to gain it by what, what I was teaching and by my relationship to the players. Uh, this is fascinating conversation. Um, one of the first things when I entered out into the blogosphere or the Twitter sphere, whatever you want to call it, was all around um, loose top laces, either not having them or you tie the top one, but not the second one. Um, and I remember a story when I was young, Mario Lemieux used to skate without his skates tied um, in his house. He would literally like kick the skates off. Yes. They were that loose, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Uh, so when I learned that, I remember going out to the local rink, it's just like a free skate and literally would just threw the skates on, didn't time up at all and went skating. And I was just like Bambi out there just finding my way. But eventually, like the muscles develop, you get the control, and then the feel you have of your edges is so advanced. Uh, yeah. It's unbelievable. So I would highly suggest that. Um, and then with your, your glove issue, uh, I've, I've actually recommended to a few parents uh, with the youngest ages, especially because the sticks are in pucks, they're not being shot that hard. So this is a little more acceptable because there's less padding, but using lacrosse gloves, because you can literally do all five fingers separately, okay. no worries. You can really get the feel for the puck, the glove, how your hands are, are moving. So uh, maybe not for the older kids where those pucks are a little bit harder, the slashes are a little bit stronger, but uh, lacrosse gloves are an excellent piece to understanding the feel and the range of the motion and building up those little 
muscles and groups that you pr probably don't think about, but are absolutely vital to performance. I, I loved also how you mentioned the shin pads. Uh, I don't know how many kids have way too long shin pads where it's like, you, you can't even bend at your ankle, let alone your knee due to this. Yeah. And then you look at players who are exceptional skaters. Uh, I remember in Pittsburgh, I was watching every day Chris Letang. And uh, Chris Letang has very short shin pads. It's almost dangerous because you could see his leg on the side. I was like, if you ever get a puck there, you, you, will, you will have a broken leg. But uh, it's no coincidence that uh, the great skaters, if you look at their shin pads, and also about tongue in, tongue out, and, uh, you know, if you have the tongue of the skate outside or inside, I think it impacts the way you skate. But obviously, I respect everybody's preferences. But there is also a big uh, element that I don't think we speak about or practice, and that is the element of experimentation. So we come in as coaches and say, okay, this is how you do it. This is the better way to do it. And I'm going to teach you the better way. But in between, there is a room where for the player to really own, to own the new movement, that the new movement is truly his or hers, it's need, it needs to be experimented. So, okay, so how does my shot feel when my hand is here? How does my shot he feels when it's here? When I grab the bottom hand and put it to the blade, how does that feel? and really go through extremes. And the same with skating. How does it feel when I'm bent over like that? How does it feel when I'm there? And I think we go way too quickly to, this is how it needs to be. And then we stay there and we try to get from here to there without this experimentation. And I just find the experimentation is a, and research. Like let the player research, where does it, maybe it's a little bit more here. Maybe it's not what the coach thinks. It, maybe it's not what I believe is the right thing. Maybe there's a, a little space in between where the player, need, and the player needs to figure it out. There's got to be, wow, wow. I really feel good when the top or bottom hand is here or when, my, when I, I don't know, jump or how do you call it, the, the uh, punch turn. You know, when I how far do I open the, that that foot on a punch there? It's extremely important. It's got to come out from him. You know, like if I open it like that, well, the turn is going to be like this. If I go extremely well, the tight turn is going to be like this. But let him or let her give him time to experiment. And so in Portland, you would see as, as I advanced more and more, we would work on skills. And there would be always a time where I would say, guys, okay, next three minutes on your own. And I said to the coaches, no feedback, let them be, let them try the moves on their own. So let's say we were working on escape move, backhand fake, forehand escape, crossover. Just guys, you on your own, with the puck, without the puck, with part, do whatever you want. And you would just see how, without the coach actually be there watching them and giving them feedback, how the movement has relaxed, how the movement has eased up, become more fluent, become more part of the player. Because the coach is not, hey, you got to do, hey, good job, or do this, 
a little bit more. Let the puck go this way. You know, it's so when I'm there constantly, the player has no space, no time. So I find in every session there should be, hey guys, two minutes on your own, three minutes on your own. And I, I would do it quite often. And the longer I did, the more I incorporated and had more trust from the players because they knew, okay, Thomas is going to show us the optimum, but he will also allow me to make it my own. And I think every player is a little bit different, um, just physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And I think that will be expressed in the movement. So not every, not the movement is not going to look the same in every single player. But as, as a coach, that's where I have advanced the most. I'm giving players and coaches now when I mentor them space and time to just work, work on your own, experiment with it, try it. Yeah, I feel like that's the absolute key and like the linchpin in a lot of this is being able to make it your own, giving that space um, whenever you're, you're mentoring people, like asking a question and stepping back and just doing absolutely nothing. Which takes takes a lot because um, you know everyone in this world is like I got to do something. Well, sometimes yeah. doing nothing is the best thing to do, and that can be <laughs> a conscious choice. Um, and and I think on the other side of that is giving the permission to players, to people, to do that. Because when you first give that to people, they will look at you sideways and be like, "What?" They, they just, I mean, especially with a lot of today's children, you know, there's so much structure and every little. Yes part of their day is accounted for like they don't know how to handle it like it's very awkward that's one of my 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 things when i think that there's a lot of mental health issues is people aren't having the time to think and relax and process things and i think when it comes to teaching hockey or whatever subject having that permission from the authority or just that space is so crucial to to making it your own like you said to make that happen and I'm curious, I think this will perfectly dovetail into the work you did with the Czech uh, women's program about giving permission to them to play a different way or even like break stigma uh, that was in the Czech Republic and giving those permissions because it's something that needs to be consciously done by leadership, authority, mentor, whatever situation you're talking about where you have have the ability to have the influence. Uh by far the hardest thing I've ever done, uh, definitely. Um, and I have to give incredible credit uh, to, the, to the women and to the girls that I've been coaching, how receptive they were and how ready they were to play differently and to, to change the way uh, the game has been perceived um, in, in Czech Republic. And um, so, you know, you have to see that the way we found the girls and the game was played was relying on the goaltender and relying on few skilled players who were able to score. Um, the game has happened along the boards, you know, chip it in, chip it out, uh, D to D up to the wall. Um, many, many times the puck has, you know, that was, for sure, when you look at them, the way they played, it was like, move the puck, move the puck. But they were moving it into players who were not open. So when um, Daryl and I looked at some of the videos from the past championships, that was the first thing. It was like, you know, just a simple way that in a team sport, you pass it to the player who is open. 
Uh, it sounds so rudimentally simple, but very difficult. Uh, find the open player. You, yeah, well, you can, you cannot move the puck if she's not open. You got to keep it. Um, and um, the girls had incredible skill, uh, but the skill was not used, utilized. Um, so when we came in with the premise that we want to dominate, <laughs> and they were looking at me like, what do you mean? Like, you know, we are only like three or four years in the A pool and we were re relegated from the A pool and we came back to the A pool. So we're, you're always said, you know, we were always told like, let's not get relegated again. Let's not lose too much. Um, and so we came with a different premise. And of course, that has been very difficult just because of what they were used to. And also how the game was perceived from other people from the outside. Uh, I, I never found out as much as here when you're a national team coach. It's you're not just coaching the team. You're just coaching everyone, basically. And not everyone is going to be inclined to what you're trying to uh, incorporate. Uh, so you're sort of fighting, fighting a little bit of the... Uh, uh, of the old establishment, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, the way the girls have played, and I just did a presentation to Wally Kozak and his Sharks group, um, and I looked out through all the videos, and the way they played in the offensive zone and the, the way they played in on the entries, um, exits, uh, the way they were able to change their own mindset was incredible. It was absolutely beyond anything I've ever seen. And really, you know, everybody's asking me, how did I do it? Well, you know, it was, it was the girls who did it. They, they showed the openness and the willingness and they, they have embraced it. Um, and I'm sure Carla McLeod who's going to continue, um, you know, will, accomplish uh, tremendous things with these with this team because they were within two years and COVID years, really that everybody has to see that we didn't have any, not many exhibition games, not too many camps because everyone's canceled, 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 canceled. All we had was important games, world championships, Olympic qualifiers and Olympic games. And in between maybe six or eight exhibition games against not that strong of opponents, and so when I look back at what the girls were able to do and the way they played, uh, and you look at the stats, you know, the only game we had uh, negative puck possession time was against the United States who dominated against us in the quarterfinals. But every other games, including uh, Finland, we were at the 60%, 65%, percent puck possession. And not we didn't win all the games, and that's the maybe the only thing that, of course, I regret or look back at. We didn't score on our opportunities, and um, one of the reasons probably was because a lot of players were in huge hundred percent scoring chances that were not used to be in those positions. So of course they were D men, they were left wingers, they were because the, the way we played one, two, three, four, five. Um, put people into scoring positions that they never faced in 20 years, 25 years of their hockey career. So you look at, wow, if we would have scored on this, we would have won probably most or all of the games. 
because we had the scoring chances to do so. But, you know, when I talked with Daryl, it was like, yeah, but the players who were in those scoring chances were not used to it. So it takes a lot of, it takes years, not only to change the mindset and the way you play, but then also to back it up through success and results. Well, uh, I would love to say that everyone should go and check out how your women played, your, your girls played. Uh, it was absolutely stunning to watch. I remember watching uh, a clip, um, and I had I had to take this clip because it was just too perfect. It was against uh, Japan, which I believe you helped at some point as well. But there was a player climbing the wall, so they're skating up the wall, and both people who were at the point, so your normal defensive positions, both just left it and went into the zone. And then the person who was net front climbed back up to take the weak side uh, defensive positions. You've got puck here coming up the wall, kind of becoming the strong side defense and someone from the net becoming the weak side D and both people at the point just leaving it, which I think most coaches would be tearing their hair out watching it. Uh, most observers would, but I was absolutely fascinated on what you and your team were able to do and how you created offense. Uh, every every coach who thinks they know offense should go watch it because it was absolutely fascinating. I think the game against Japan was a rough one. Like you actually dominated and then come down and get the one. You're like, ah, oh, but it was should not have happened, but uh, absolutely fascinating. So I just want to tip my cap to you and what you and your team, uh, you know, obviously they're the ones playing, actually making it happen. Uh, did and should shape the game uh, for many years to come because it was absolutely way above the curve uh, on the cutting edge of what hockey is going to become, I would say. Yeah, and, and the huge credit, really huge credit to all the girls, uh, what they have accomplished. And I just, I am hopeful and I believe that they will get the medals and results that they deserve. And it was probably too too soon. Uh, it's it's a process. It's not you know one thing is to play like that, and uh, the other thing is to back it up through results, and and to win consistently. You know, and the game against Denmark was the same thing. You know, we had six uh, not breakaways, but we were six times in front of the goalie by by ourselves in the third period, lost the game three two. Uh, but that's all part of the learning and. The, the psychological part, emotional part, spiritual part is part of it is very much underrated. And I realized, you know, that not only you need to play fantastic hockey, but it has to be backed up through uh, relationships and through communication. And, you know, Dave King wrote in his book, in his latest book, that sometimes our biggest uh, strengths could become our biggest weaknesses. And that happened to me. And my performance, uh, I always thought communication and uh, understanding of the players is my strength. And certainly it was not at the Olympic Games. And I made some mistakes in communications and the way I approached the team. Uh, it doesn't matter why, but it, it just it just happened. So um, that was a huge learning that, you know, things that never happened in my 33-year coaching career happened at the Olympic Games. It just tells you that we are never done learning and um, never done uh, working on ourselves and advancing ourselves emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Absolutely. And, and there's a process to everything, right? And uh, 
you talk about the process of going through and evolving this team and t- teaching a ton with video because COVID kept canceling every ice session, it seemed like, or every camp you guys had, which again, what, you, what your group accomplished is absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, we, we could talk about process, but I think I, I want to dive into maybe something a little bit more uh, than the process itself it is more so about the process of the mentality, the process that went into you know, you being able to openly talk with your team about not fearing that we may not make the Olympics or not even thinking about that or the idea of detaching, you know, how they perform in a game and their practices from their self-worth and being able to become responsible for your own life and truly change an entire group. Um, and I would say even change an entire country because there was a moment where the men's national team was playing and the women's national team was playing at the exact same time. And I, I want to say that the women's team had half a million, the men's had a lot less than that. So I, I think that would be curious to hear from you and your uh, perspective around being able to shape that mentality, being very open to talk about not fearing, detaching self-worth from your sport, all of that. You know, I said many times that uh, if I look back at my own life, I've been always inspired by by many different people and women and men in the history, whether it was actors, um, singers, uh, athletes, uh, politicians, um, my father. And so when I took the job, I knew that we will need something more than just Thomas Pacina, uh, we will need somebody who uh, is a true inspiration that and left a true legacy. And uh, I was extremely inspired by a lady called Milada Horakova, who uh, was a, uh, a politician, uh, a social worker in the 30s in Czech Republic. And she always advanced human rights. Uh, and she was not even a feminist. She was just wanted to make sure that all people have the same rights and same same spot in society and uh, have equal opportunity to to do their best they can do in their lives. And she was imprisoned by the Nazis for four years in a concentration camp and was... uh, came back from the concentration camp and obviously communists uh, took after the second world war, they took over here and they were also not happy with her because uh, she advanced all human rights, not just the communistic rights. So they have imprisoned her for a year or two. And then finally they killed her and in a trial that was uh, basically fabricated. And what was so inspiring about her is that she never wavered. She always had the same idea, same belief, uh, and she stood by it no matter what, no matter of four years of concentration camp, no matter of uh, being uh, uh, imprisoned by the Czechs. Um, And she had an opportunity, the communists gave her an opportunity to to leave to England and write books and, or join the communistic party. She said, no. And, uh, she knew that it's going to end with her death. She knew that. But she said, I'm a Czech. And those are my beliefs. And I will die by that. And so she had an, there's an incredible book about her. And I had everybody. 
uh, even coaching staff read the book. And it was a very dark, dark book. Eh? Like there's details about the concentration camps and there's details about her family. She had kids and her kids had to live with her sister because she was in a prison. And it was, and then we had a team building, uh, team building exercise before the world championships where we had uh, units of five uh, discussing the book and then presenting to, to the whole team what it, what it means, what it meant to them and how they saw the book. And it was interesting how some girls were like, you know, like she was a mother, she maybe could have pushed a little bit less on the political side and she could have looked after her family. And some of the girls were inspired uh, by, by not ever uh, wavering for what you believe in. And I thought it was so important to us that this is, we are Czech Republic, we are a Czech national team. And this is how we play the game of hockey. And this is our game. And by the way we play it, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, this is our game and we're going to stick to it. That was the whole idea. And um, the girls, you know, looking back at it, um, the world championships, I mean, we lost one nothing with um, in a quarterfinal game against Finland, who a couple of years before uh, was in the finals, got the silver medal in overtime against the U.S., was one of the best teams in the world. And we played our game like we had 58% of puck position, 842. It was an even game, even game. But the Finnish coach said it was the best game in history of women's hockey between two European teams. That that says something. Uh, that says something that the, the girls got the message. You know, we didn't get the luck, but they certainly got the message. And then a, when we qualified for the Olympics for the first time in history, the game against Hungary, which was the last game on paper, yes, we were favorites, but we also had the pressure of not qualifying three times to the Olympics, uh, playing in front of our own fans in, in Czech Republic, being in the role of the favorite, having to win, must win. And uh, Hungary, who has been extremely well coached by uh, Lisa Haley, Canadian coach, who has a gold medal from the Sochi Olympics with Canada. And uh, so I knew how difficult it's going to be. And yes, many people from the outside say, oh, this is easy draw. It's not very difficult. But for me, it was one of the most difficult tournaments. And the way the girls played that game was the most perfect played game I've ever been part of. We won 5-1 and scored at the right times and did the right things at the right time. Uh, never seen a better performance. And uh, one of the Coaches and uh, Czech coaches who won a gold medal in uh, Nagano uh, wrote me a beautiful uh, message on, on the phone. He says, like, it looked like you were never burdened by the pressure of the moment. And as the greatest compliment you can ever get as a coach or as a player, it didn't look like you were burdened by the pressure of the moment. I will never forget it. As greatest compliment I've ever gotten as a coach, as a leader, and uh, the, the girls um, as a team, um, we were unable, unable to re replicate that at the Olympic Games for many reasons. Um, and like I said, my performance at the Olympic Games was 
subpar for sure uh, in in the uh, in the department where I I thought I was very strong and uh, I was not very strong at the Olympics. Um, but you know um, the going back to Milada Horakova, having something that is beyond ourselves, having the connection to something higher than ourselves is is where the connection is and where we are able to perform at a different level. And I think the, the girls really got it. That is stunning. Uh, I have so many questions left and there's no way we're going to get to it in one episode. So if you don't mind, I'm going to invite you back for round two of this. I think we can dive in deeper. Uh, but I, I would love to end the episode on that uh, note that you weren't burdened by the pressure of the moment because I, I think there's nothing higher than that as well. That is absolutely fascinating and stunning that you were able to get that from a fellow uh, peer coach. Uh, hopefully it was someone you looked up to as well because that would be extra, extra special. So um, I will leave the floor open for two minutes here before we come back another day uh, and make this second episode because there's so much more to dig into and i really appreciate you taking the time and hopefully uh some time off will do you well and, and help you recover in the best ways possible and be able to reflect and continue to grow as i know that is very important to you thank you so very much and it's it's been a um really introspective time now with being able to speak with you and speak with uh wally and his group and um the coaching site, uh, the coaches site, uh, it just it, it helps to dissect everything and to heal and to 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 look back and say see what the girls were able to accomplish was uh, something maybe we we will come to appreciate maybe in years to come. Awesome! Thank you so much, Thomas. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you Buttes here next week for a brand new episode.